is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And the U.S. Constitution was created on September 17, 1787. And all week long, we're celebrating and hearing stories about this remarkable document, These Remarkable Times, sponsored by our friends at the Stetson Family Office. Today, we're joined by the head of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. But let's first turn to one of America's greatest historians and storytellers, David McCullough to set the scene about what our framers achieved in Philadelphia. They're meeting in Philadelphia in secret, in in the same room where the Declaration of Independence was worked out and signed. Many of you, I hope, have been there. You've seen it. It's not a very large room. It's not a vast, impressive gathering place. And, And its importance to our story as a country to who we are and what we stand for could not be greater. Imagine these two immensely important documents, both of which are, of course, here, where we are now, were created there. And we're talking to Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center, who is in Philadelphia, not far from Assembly Hall, which is what author David McCullough was just referring to. Talk about what David just said about this very special place. Well, it is such a thrill to be here in the National Constitution Center overlooking Independence Hall. Imagine coming to work every day and seeing the room where it happened, the cradle of the greatest document of human freedom in history, the U.S. Constitution, as well as the Declaration of Independence. It is such an honor to work at the National Constitution Center, and I hope all of your listeners will come visit us here in Philadelphia and also check us out online. You know, people, I think, Jeffrey, don't quite understand the exceptional nature of freedom and that it was not just rare, but almost unheard of in the 18th century. Talk about freedom. Well, that's absolutely right. Look at the governments of Europe, and there are a group of Kings and autocrats and oligarchs and thugs. There's uh, one small experience of democracy in Switzerland, but otherwise the framers are trying to create the first government based on popular sovereignty. That is the idea that we the people are sovereign, not the king and parliament or the senators or the, or the aristocrats in history. So they have this tremendous theoretical challenge and also practical challenge. And that's what created the miracle in Philadelphia. What problems, Jeffrey, were the founders trying to solve when they came together? They had this governing document called the Articles of Confederation. That wasn't working out too well, was it? It certainly wasn't. The Articles of Confederation required unanimous consent of all the states before anything could be done. And as a result, it was impossible to raise money to support the war. George Washington is at Valley Forge, along with a young soldier called John Marshall, without shoes for the soldiers because the Confederation government couldn't raise taxes. At the same time, the framers are afraid of mobs. In Massachusetts, there's Shays Rebellion, where groups of debtors are forming mobs and refusing to pay their creditors. And therefore, the framers are trying to create a central government strong enough to raise taxes and achieve common purposes like the common defense, but constrained enough to protect liberty. And that was the central challenge of the con- of the convention. And what a duality. And by the way, still the central challenge of the people today, the fights we're having today, Jeffrey, in large measure, some of them are very similar, aren't they? Well, they are. The strains that 
animated the convention resonate powerfully in American democracy today. The framers have been reading about failed democracies in Greece and Rome. They believe that unchecked direct democracies leads to demagogues and the mob. Madison says that all large assemblies of any character composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. So what they're trying to do is to create not a direct democracy, but a representative republic where reason will spread slowly over time. The whole system is designed to slow down the formation of majorities so that reason can prevail. And that explains the separation of powers, checks and balances, and Madison's faith that the extended republic, the fact that America was really big, would make it hard for mobs, uh, which he called factions, to mobilize quickly and, and that he figured that their passion would dissipate before they had a chance to do mischief. Obviously, these questions are centrally relevant today. Indeed. Let's talk about some of the key influences on the thinking of our founders. David McCullough in that same speech said, you are what you read. And I so believe this. What were the founders reading? The founders were reading Enlightenment thinkers like John Locke and figures of the Scottish Enlightenment like Francis Hutcheson and Jean-Jacques Burlamaki. And these thinkers believe that we all have certain natural rights that come not from government, but from God or nature. And the whole theory of natural rights, Lockean theory, is contained in the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. What's an unalienable right? Well, according to the natural rights thinkers like Locke, we're born in a state of nature with these inherent God-given rights. And when we form governments, we can alienate or surrender to government temporary control over certain rights in order to ensure greater security and safety of the rights we've retained. What's the quintessential unalienable right? The rights of conscience, the right to believe or not to believe according to the dictates of conscience, because our beliefs are the product of reason. And these are men, and they are all men, of the Enlightenment who think we, we can't alienate or surrender our powers of reason because it defines who we are. And then the second unalienable right is the right to, of rebellion, the right to change government whenever it threatens our retained rights rather than protecting them. So this natural rights theory was at the core of the constitutional design. And let's talk about what they were writing, because you had some great writers in that room. Talk about the Federalist Papers, if you can. Well, the Federalist Papers are among the greatest contributions to political philosophy of the 18th century, as well as being a practical defense of the Constitution. They were written by James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay in order to persuade people to ratify the Constitution. Remember, after the Constitution is proposed in Independence Hall on September 17, 1787, it doesn't have the force of law. It has to be ratified by two-thirds of the state conventions in order to speak for we the people. So Madison, Hamilton, and Jay write these remarkable defenses of the Constitution. They're published in the newspaper. We have here at the Constitution Center the first public printing of the Constitution in the Pennsylvania Packet newspaper published two days after the Constitution was proposed. And the Pennsylvania Packet and newspapers like it published the Federalist Papers that people could read. And they would get them on carts or, you know, whatever the 18th century equivalent of newsstands was. And it's just remarkable how willing people were to take the time to absorb these complicated arguments of political theory and to debate them and ultimately to ratify the Constitution. And when we come back more with Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Jeffrey Rosen, who leads the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. Let's talk about some of the debates and tensions the framers were trying to resolve with the Constitution, starting with big states versus small states. What was going on as the states debated whether they wanted to get on board with this new Constitution? Well, that's one of the largest debates over the ratification of the Constitution. You have big states like Virginia that want representation to be based on population because then they would get all the representatives. You have small states like New Jersey that want to guarantee a certain number of representatives for each state no matter how big it is. And the problem was resolved by Connecticut. Roger Sherman of Connecticut came up with the Connecticut Compromise that based apportionment in the House on population and in the Senate based on two representatives for every state. And that was broadly how it was resolved. But it really is interesting that the question of how big the body should be was the central one that gripped the convention. And the First Amendment originally proposed to the Constitution at the top of the Bill of Rights wasn't the one protecting free speech. It was one that said there should be one representative in Congress for every 30,000 inhabitants. If that had passed, there'd be 6,000 Congress people today around the size of the Chinese National Assembly. Uh, it didn't pass, but it just shows how central the concern over how big the apportionment should be was to the conventional debates. Indeed. Let's talk about now the structure of this great document. I want to play you a clip from Justice Scalia. Uh, he gave this talk at the United States Senate. If you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. <laughs> the Bill of Rights of the, of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. Big deal. They guaranteed freedom of the speech of the press, of street demonstrations and protests, and anyone who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that, that is wonderful stuff. Of course, just words on paper, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union, you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union. They didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power. But address Scalia's point about this Bill of Rights, because most Americans are going to go straight to the Bill of Rights. I think Justice Scalia is absolutely right. Uh, Madison himself said originally that a Bill of Rights was unnecessary or dangerous. Unnecessary because he believed the Constitution itself was a Bill of Rights. By constraining congressional power, it gave the legislature no power to abridge free speech and therefore there was no need to say so. And dangerous because Madison and the framers thought, as people of the Enlightenment, that our rights are so sweeping, since they come from God or nature, that to try to write them down might pe lead people wrongly to assume if it wasn't written down, it wasn't protected. So that's why the main protections for liberty, as Justice Scalia suggested, were originally structural. By narrowly limiting and enumerating Congress's power and saying it could do some stuff but not everything, they thought that they would protect liberty by delineating the executive and preventing him from being a king and forcing him to act with Congress rather than through executive orders, for example, which are now controversial among 
presidents of both parties. They thought they'd protect liberty. And by creating a judiciary with limited jurisdiction and powers, they thought that liberty would be protected. So structural guarantees. And then and there's more. Uh, they, they wanted to separate power among the three branches so no one branch could speak for the people. And then further divide power between the federal government and the states to ensure that the states could check the federal government. So it was really the genius of the convention was its structural dispersion of power in Europe. Power was concentrated, and that was the most important uh, protection for liberty in the Constitution. And so they were doing those two things we talked about when we started this conversation. They wanted to both have a central government, but yet limit it and constrain it at the very same time. Let's talk about Article One and the structure of our government. The legislative branch, why was this the first branch? The legislative branch, the framers thought, was the first branch. They thought it would be the most dangerous branch. Madison thought that Congress would be an impetuous vortex, sort of inhaling all powers into its domain. And it was the first branch because they believed that it was the legislature that should ultimately make the laws. Uh, they, they didn't want to create a king. It was very important not to have an absolute monarch. And the legislature was the people's branch. And therefore, the people should be uh, the f- first. Um, but they really wanted to constrain the legislature. So that was the decision to create a popularly elected House and then a Senate which, while representing the small states, would also serve as what George Washington purportedly called the senatorial saucer that would cool the passions of the House, the idea that the Senate would be comprised of wise aristocrats who would uh, deliberate in the common good and would prevent the the populist House from doing anything too hasty. Uh, And Congress was given much broader powers than the Confederation Congress, in, in particular power over taxes, over tariffs over defense. Congress has the power to declare war and not the president, as well as this sweeping clause, as they called it, the power to make all laws necessary and proper to carry out its enumerated powers. And and Hamilton thought that was a very sweeping power indeed. And Jefferson disagreed, setting up the current debates over the scope of whether Congress's power is limited and, and how it's limited. But that's why Article One is first, and the framers really thought that it would be the most dangerous branch. Indeed. And the House, by the way, everyone goes up for election every two years. The Senate, it's six years. But not only is it every six years, Jeffrey, but it's a rotating six years. Why? Their model is Cincinnatus, who George Washington invoked, the farmer who serves in the Roman uh, Senate and then goes back to work on his farm after his service. And they did not want to have uh, representatives in all the time in order to protect liberty. Yeah, civilian in the end, a government run by civilians, right? Crucially important. Uh, And the military, of course, under civilian power. And George Washington, the former general, always presenting himself in his civilian capacity as a citizen. Indeed. Let's talk about the executive branch. This is Article 2. Talk about generally what the founders had in mind with this article. The president was given very specific powers. And talk about them. He really is. And it's it's remarkable how sort of short a list it is. Uh, he's given the power to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, known as the, the vesting clause. He's given control over the executive branch, which includes the f- power to hire and fire executive branch officials. Through custom, George Washington established the power to receive ambassadors and some uh, other powers that are not enumerated. 
Originally, in the first drafts, the president wasn't even given the power over nominations of Supreme Court justices and treaties. That was exclusively in the Senate, but then the, the president now shares it. The question of how the president should be elected was was controversial in the convention. Uh, James Wilson and other populists wanted direct popular election. Madison wanted election by the legislature, and the solution was the unwieldy electoral college, which, as you suggested earlier, has failed to serve its original function of being wise, uh, you know, uh, Solon's choosing presidents of the highest distinction. And with the rise of political parties, which the framers failed to anticipate, quickly became a rubber stamp for the choice of the parties. But it really is striking how few enumerated powers the president has and how the office was completely transformed really much later around the election of 1912 when Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson insisted that the president was a steward of the people who directly channeled populist will and the constitutionalist William Howard Taft disagreed and took the old Madisonian vision of the office as a constrained chief magistrate. And now, as I suggested, we have presidents of both parties ruling by executive order rather than through Congress, which was the opposite of the framers' intention. So the office, which is now known as the imperial presidency, has been transformed in ways that the framers did not anticipate. Indeed. And let's talk last about the judiciary, or not last, but Article Three. Talk about this branch. And did the founders think it would be the powerful branch it is today? I mean, we talk about this all the time. Every time we talk about the nomination of a Supreme Court justice, it's big, big news. Is that what the founders intended? It is not. We know this confidently because our hero, the rap star of the moment, Alexander Hamilton, said in Federalist 78 that the judiciary would be the least dangerous branch because it had neither purse nor sword. In other words, it couldn't force people to obey its orders and relied on popular persuasion. Federalist 78 does establish that the framers expected that courts could strike down unconstitutional laws. That was the power recognized in Marbury versus Madison. When there's a conflict between the will of the people represented by the Constitution and the will of the legislature represented by ordinary laws, judges should prefer the principle to the agent. In other words, the Constitution has more status as supreme law than that of an ordinary act of the people's fallible representatives. But the court was by no means exercising that power much. It struck down only two federal laws in the first 75 years of its existence, Marbury versus Madison. Uh, in the early 19th century and then the infamous Dred Scott decision in 1857. By contrast, about 75 laws in the next 75 years and 125 laws or more since 1934. More with Jeffrey Rosen, president of the National Constitution Center and CEO, too, here on Our American Stories. continue our conversation with the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, Jeffrey Rosen. And all week long, we're celebrating the Constitution on September 17, 1787. Our founders signed that document all week long. All of this work is brought to us by the great people at the Stetson family office. Jeffrey, let's talk about the Bill of Rights. How did they come to be? 
Well, at the Constitutional Convention, Madison and other Federalists insisted, hey, there's no need for a Bill of Rights because you don't have to worry. The Congress itself is constrained. The Constitution itself is a Bill of Rights. But the Anti-Federalists disagreed. And in particular, three Anti-Federalists, that is people opposed to strong federal power, refused to sign the Constitution because it didn't contain a Bill of Rights. And at the National Constitution Center, we have this amazing room called Signers Hall with life-size statues of all the framers. And in the back of the room are the three anti-federalists, George Mason of Virginia, Edmund Randolph of Virginia, and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts. Now you can pedantically pronounce it gerrymandering rather than gerrymandering because it was named after him because he was the Massachusetts politician who drew voting districts. So they snaked around like salamanders in order to protect incumbents. So those three guys said, no, we're not going to sign. And animated by their noble protest, a bunch of the state ratifying conventions said, yes, we will ratify the Constitution on the condition that you adopt subsequent amendments, a Bill of Rights. So Madison, faced with this huge pressure from the grassroots, changed his mind about a Bill of Rights. It's one of the great evolutions in constitutional history. He cut and pasted the amendments from the state constitution and bills of rights that were adapted between 1776 and the 1780s. Madison first had 19 amendments proposed. They were whittled down to 12 that were actually sent down to the states. And out of those, 10 were adopted. And those are known today as the Bill of Rights. Let's talk about the people now, because the people are important. You know, McCullough in that same speech, Jeffrey, had said nothing had to happen the way it happened, A, and B, that those people weren't living in the past. They didn't know what was going to happen. They all journeyed down to this place in Philadelphia. And I think most people agree without this one man who sat in the middle of that beautiful hall. His name was George Washington. Could this have happened without George Washington? No, it could not have. He had greater prestige than anyone else in the new republic. And if he hadn't blessed the enterprise, then no one else would have showed up. He didn't know what was going to happen. And he really struggled over the question of whether or not to lend his incredible prestige to an enterprise that turned out to be illegal under the terms of the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation said that any amendments had to be unanimously adopted but the Constitutional Convention pretty quickly decided that they would adopt uh, changes based on less than unanimity, something more like two-thirds. So for Washington to go there after having won the Revolutionary War and developed all that goodwill was an act of faith on his part, and it was that endorsement that made the Constitution possible. Let's talk about the four or five most important people in your estimation, Jeffrey, and in the National Constitution Center's estimation, who are the critical thinkers? And what state did they come from? It looks like, for some reason, Virginia and Massachusetts had tremendous input in this endeavor. They really did. And Virginia takes preeminence uh, because of the participation of James Madison, who's known as the father of the Constitution because he was one of its principal draftspeople, and it was Madison whose central idea it was that we should have a representative republic rather than a direct democracy that would slow down the formation of popular majorities so that reason could prevail. Other important figures, of course, we've got to mention the guy who threw away his shot, Alexander Hamilton, uh, who everyone loves from the musical. He's from New York. He is a champion of broad national power and of an extraordinarily strong executive and Senate. In fact, Hamilton favors an executive for life, a kind of elected king. 
which makes him an unlikely populist hero. He was no populist, but he did favor a strong national government in order to create a national bank and a thriving national economy. His great antagonist, Thomas Jefferson, wasn't there. He was in Paris. And uh, John Adams from Massachusetts, the other very important influence on constitutional thinking, was in London. So two big framers were not there. Among those who were, I'd like to give a shout out to an underappreciated genius of the Constitution, James Wilson from Pennsylvania. It was James Wilson who came up with the idea that we the people of the United States as a whole are sovereign rather than we the people of each individual state or the king in parliament or the state governments themselves. That was the radical innovation of American political philosophy that allowed Lincoln when he resisted the right of the South to secede to say, since we the people of the United States as a whole created the union, we the people of the United States as a whole would have to consent to its alteration. And that's why the language of the preamble of the Constitution was changed from its original draft, we the people of the states of New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Providence Plantation, and so forth, into we the people of the United States. That was all because of the great genius of James Wilson. And then one final uh, Pennsylvania hero, I mean, well, two, actually, we've got to mention Governor Morris, who was the head of the Committee of Style, uh, which came up with a lot of the final language. And then Benjamin Franklin, who didn't say much during the convention, but who had great authority. And at the end, after the Constitution was ratified, he was famously asked, what have you created, Dr. Franklin? And he said, a republic if you can keep it. And that it's important to parse what that means, a republic, not a direct democracy. In other words, a, a government where representatives would deliberate in the name of the people. And if you can keep it, that means we, the people, have an obligation to continue to educate ourselves about the Constitution so we can elect representatives who will protect liberty in our name. Indeed. We don't have the oldest country, but we have the oldest constitution. It's quite a miracle that these guys, their thinking in the 18th century was just so dead on and spot on as it relates to the issues of millennia. It's amazing. A constitution of 4,000 some odd words shorter than the Facebook privacy policy and that has endured so dramatically. The framers themselves, I think, would have been surprised by its endurance. Uh, Jefferson thought that you needed a constitutional convention every 10 years so that uh, people could rethink the basic structure of government. Madison completely disagreed. He thought it was a miracle, basically just wild luck, that the convention made of fallible human beings had produced this remarkable document the first time, and he didn't want to risk having another convention because he thought it could go haywire the next time. So there's something, I think you have to attribute it, obviously, to the genius of the framers, but also to the power of their ideas, the fact that they were channeling that natural rights thinking and that they were creatures in the Enlightenment, and they were so devoted above all to the power of reason, combining a devotion to popular sovereignty and majority rule with an insistence that that majority rule be reasonable rather than impetuous. That was the great genius. And then writing it down, the words themselves constrain and the words themselves endure, was an act of genius that has proved to create the most enduring constitution in history. Let's talk about property rights, if we could. There's that patent idea right there in Article 1. And for my money, I think what's so remarkable about this country is that not only is our property property protected, but our ideas, what's in our head is protected. And I think this is what makes America the leader in the arts, in ideas, in innovation. Talk about that. 
Yes, the the intellectual property clause was a, influenced by Jefferson, who believed that it's impossible to copyright ideas themselves because it's like a flame of a candle. I, I don't steal the flame from you if I pass it along, kindling a fellow idea, but you can certainly patent the means of expression because that encourages creativity, which was the core uh, goal of the freedom of conscience. And property is really important because Madison says – the protection of property is the primary object of government. Remember, he's really haunted by these debtor mobs in Massachusetts that he believes are threatening private property. But it is not a protection for the rich over the poor. Madison is very much insistent on equality of conditions. He's looking forward to the year 1930 and afraid that there might be vast income inequality that would make it hard for small farmers and small business people to uh, counter large corporations. But the whole Constitution is suffused with protection for property, and indeed they thought that was the main point of the Constitution. And beautifully put, Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, all week long celebrating the Constitution here on Our American Stories, the biggest story of them all, the story of our nation's founding, continues after these messages. with his final segment of an hour with Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center. And storytelling doesn't get better than this, folks. And this is Constitution Week here. We're celebrating it thanks to our sponsors at the Stetson Family Office. Jeffrey, since the Constitution's creation in 1787, there have been only 27 amendments. Talk about some of the big ones, particularly in the context of our nation's original sin, slavery. The convention refused to constitutionalize slavery or not. Uh, Madison centrally said, as Sean Wilentz argues in a brilliant new book, that the question of whether there should be property in men is one that the Constitution should not take a position on, leaving it up to Congress and ultimately to war to resolve the status of enslaved people. And after the Civil War, Lincoln, resurrecting uh, Jefferson's promise in the Declaration at Gettysburg, promises a new birth of freedom. And the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution passed after the Civil War abolish slavery, guarantee equal protection of the law to all persons, uh, equal privileges or immunities to all citizens, and prohibit states as well as the federal government from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, ultimately applying the guarantees of the Bill of Rights against the states. And finally, the 15th Amendment gives African Americans the right to vote. So the post-Civil War amendments are a central part of our constitutional design and, as you suggested, remedied uh, the original sin and uh, are part of uh, a document that is increasingly inclusive, embracing the rights of African Americans, women in the 19th Amendment, uh, young people who are given uh, the right to vote, as well as increasingly expansive rights for non-citizens. Indeed. And what the National Constitution Center does, as I alluded to earlier, Jeffrey, is when folks go in, they're going to see opinions, uh, but opinions by the best and brightest on, let us just say, both sides. Some people might think there are more than two sides, but you, you do your best to go to the best sources from both sides. 
Talk about how you chose the organizations you chose and talk a little bit about these two sides. And I, I almost want to say one's sort of a living constitution, one's originalism. I think that may be too simplified, but for, for brevity's sake, describe the decisions and discussions you had at the National Constitution Center when, when doing all this work. Well, the core of our educational efforts that I would love your listeners to check out is called the Interactive Constitution. It's online at constitutioncenter.org, and it's also in the App Store at Interactive Constitution. And it's co-sponsored by the Federalist Society, which is the leading conservative and libertarian lawyers organization, and the American Constitution Society, the leading progressive organization. And we asked those two groups to nominate scholars to write about every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. So it's the most amazing and exciting educational tool. You can click on any amendment. Let's take the most controversial one, the Second Amendment. And you can find scholars nominated by both sides, Nelson Lund and Adam Winkler, with a thousand words about what they agree the Second Amendment means, and then separate statements about what they disagree. So both Winkler and Lund agreed that the Second Amendment was designed to prohibit the federal government from disarming citizens so they could defend themselves against federal tyranny. But they disagree about whether assault weapons bans are constitutional or not. So by asking liberals and conservatives to explore areas of agreement and disagreement, the common statement is like a unanimous Supreme Court opinion. You can be totally confident that every word in that statement is agreed to by scholars on both sides. And then we identify the areas of disagreement. And that's really what the Constitution was set up to do. Uh, Justice Holmes said the Constitution is made for people of fundamentally differing points of view. And by asking citizens to set aside their political views and instead ask uh, not what the government should do, but what the Constitution allows government to do, in other words, focus on the constitutional, not political questions, bring the leading voices together on all sides and explore areas of agreement and disagreement. We're trying to model the civil discourse that the framers thought was necessary, but most importantly, just to allow citizens to educate themselves about the Constitution. George Washington says that unless citizens are educated in the science of government, the whole system will collapse. And Jefferson says democracy cannot survive ignorant and free. So that is why so urgently important for all of your listeners to go to the interactive constitution, pick provisions they don't know about, respectfully entertain the arguments on both sides, be open to the possibility of changing your mind after confronting uh, an argument on a different side, and most important, be ready to embrace a constitutional conclusion that might clash with your political views. In other words, you might think gun control is a great idea, but the Second Amendment prohibits it, or it's a terrible idea, but the Second Amendment allows it. And the same question can be asked for any constitutional provision, and that's what it means to engage in the privilege of constitutional debate. And let's get to that point of the agreement. You know, today, folks hear about all the 5-4 decisions in the, at the Supreme Court. But what I loved about that and still love about that interactive constitution is that point of agreement. And Americans agree about many more things than they know, but no one ever asks them to sit down and find out what they agree on. We instantly go to disagreement. Talk about those court cases, because there are so many of them, Jeffrey, that are nine nothing. Something like up to 80% of all Supreme Court decisions are nine to nothing. So there's a huge unanimity in the Supreme Court. Now, it's true that the really contested constitutional cases sometimes divide, but it's very important, especially in these incredibly polarized times, that listeners not assume 
that it's just always five Republicans against four Democrats. The current Chief Justice John Roberts has made it a premium. He's made it a central mission of his chief justiceship to try to persuade his colleagues to converge around multipartisan, often unanimous decisions. We have examples of those in cases involving digital privacy where the court nine to zero has said that the government can't search you when you're arrested and seize your cell phone because that's like the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution. We also have unexpected alliances that unite liberal and conservative justices of similar judicial philosophy, like that interesting internet tax case where there were a group of uh, five liberals and conservatives who thought precedent was really important and four liberals and conservatives who thought it was less important. So that's why it's so important to educate yourselves about the constitutional methodologies. We've been talking about originalism, living constitutionalism. There's also textualism, pragmatism, uh, an emphasis on the structural protections of the Constitution, and also natural rights, which we've been talking about. All of these are embraced by justices of different political persuasions and can lead in different directions. And once you've mastered those, then you'll come to think of the courts not in purely political terms, but ultimately as constitutional bodies. Indeed. One of the things we're going to press for here on this show each and every year is that National Constitution Day be a day in which all public schools do something really radical. They talk about and teach the Constitution for a day, Jeffrey, and we are hoping that your Constitution Center is the one credible source that folks can go to, that a superintendent of schools can go to and say, hey, look, these guys have got it all figured out. They're not picking a team. Talk about what you're doing about that primal goal of getting our public schools particularly to spend more time on the Revolutionary War, but more importantly, on this remarkable document called our Constitution. Well, I'm really thrilled that the interactive Constitution we've been talked about is about to be ramped up so it's even more accessible to students of all backgrounds and ages. We are working to create videos with Supreme Court Justices Elena Kagan and Neil Gorsuch about the First Amendment, and we're creating a two-week course on the First Amendment that the College Board, which runs the advanced placement courses, will require for all students who take AP courses, not just AP History and Government, but Italian and Biology, because we in the College Board think it's so important for everyone to know these basic principles. But it's not enough to make this great tool available just to AP kids. We must bring it to students across America in public schools, in charter schools, home schools, underserved communities everywhere. And the next version of the online interactive constitution will include videos, lessons plans, links to Supreme Court cases, all made very accessible so that any student and any citizen can learn about the essence of the Constitution in a balanced, trusted way that brings leading liberal and conservative voices together. So we're so excited about this. The Interactive Constitution has gotten 18 million hits since it launched just three years ago, and our goal really is to bring it to every student in America. It is a beautiful tool. It's a fun tool, too, Jeffrey, and this is fun. I think I want to leave with that. My dad was a history teacher. We took Civil War battlefield tours together. This show has done a 30-part series on Lewis and Clark. What a story it is, their story. And I think the hard thing for people to do is to know that this was an exciting time. Uh, It's not just a bunch of facts and dates. This is about our lives, Jeffrey. There's nothing more fun and elevating and satisfying than learning about history. These are human stories. They're all about people. They're about people like Alexander Hamilton, whose whose story from the scrappy immigrant to the most powerful head of the bank to this incredible duel has just seized America. Stories like uh, John 
Marshall, the Supreme Court justice, who was so convivial, the way he persuaded his fellow justices to be unanimous is by having them all drink Madeira together, and they would all get buzzed, and all the cases were unanimous. And stories like the incredible John Adams, who has this uh, vision of preventing the dangers of Greece and Rome and uh, seethes uh, with a rivalry with his uh, former friend, Alexander Hamilton, who he believes has uh, gone over to the dark side. So it's absolutely not uh, – I'm just – I'm a law professor uh, at GW Law School, and here at the National Constitution Center, I feel like I've got the best job in the world because I get to learn something incredibly fun and interesting every day, and there is so much to learn, and it would be so exciting for all your listeners to just get inflamed with the joy of learning history and to do as much of it as possible. And that was Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. Go to their website. And the interactive constitution is terrific. Go to hillsdale.edu. Their courses are great. The constitution courses are too. And of course, the Stetson Family Office sponsored all of this stuff. All of the content for National Constitution Week was not possible without them. Their materials are terrific too. Essentials in Education. Go to constitutioncurriculum.org. That's constitutioncurriculum.org. The American Story, the Story of the Constitution here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And you've heard from Edie Hand before on our show, and she's told some remarkable stories. And you can hear those stories on our website. Today you're going to hear a little bit about Edie's own life story. We love telling you stories of family, stories of mothers, and the importance they play in their children's lives for better and for worse. Here's Edie with her own story. I recall a simpler time in my life in Burnout, Alabama. It was so small that we used to laugh and say, we know burnout's burnt plum out. I remember going out back of the house and I would be making mud pies. My brothers would come up and I'll never forget how they said, so what are you cooking today, Edie? Or they called me Edith. And I said, I'm making a new mud pie. You want to try it? I remember they sat down on the little pieces of wood on the rocks and they put that mud in their mouth. They got sick from eating that dirt and running to the house to tell mother that I'd fed them mud pies. It wasn't funny to my mother, but it was, it was funny to me. It was those little things. I remember going to the barn with the boys and we saddle up our horses. We had two Shetland ponies and a quarter horse. It was a a wonderful place to grow up. 
It was 40 acres of rolling hills. We had the garden with different chores to do. Uh, the boys did more in the garden. I was more helping mother with laundry. My mother would always have us baked when we got off a school bus, I remember, was baked sweet potatoes and chocolate doodad cookies. She would want to hear about what we had done in school for the day. I remember we had a cold glass of milk with that. That was, it's just remembering home. That was home to me. And we all need some place we can call home, either physically or a place we can go back to in our mind. And that is a place for me. And and I think the barn, I used to think, this is the place. You know, it was just simpler times, but it was the place of the most joy, I think, of feeling free and you could be anything you want to be. But the barn just spoke to me in a way of, I like the openness, I like the lofts, and you could dream. It was a place to dream. You could look out through the holes, see the sky, or you could jump out of the barn and be in a pile of sawdust or hay, and we played kick the can, relay runs that we would see how fast we were, you know, to go from one tree to the next. It was just nothing big but those simple games that I I cherished the most that I would call, this is the place. I think that place is where I found me. My mother, Sue, was a homemaker. When I was young, she just lived for her children. She loved to dress me up beautifully. She, I was her baby doll. And, of course, I was her first child. And the boy's always so handsome. Now, she didn't come to the barn and do the things with us, but my grandmother, Alice, did. She, she was a tomboy, my grandmother was. She, she, could, she could ride, she could milk cows, she could do anything. But my mother was the one that always had everything just right in the home, was always dressed perfect. My mother taught me about being proper, good manners. It was always important to be a lady. So I grew up with a lot of old school manners with her. She was always very proud of my accomplishments in life. I didn't get to be as close to her as I wanted to be. But she was closer to the boys. I think my mother was closer to the boys because they were more needy. And she would say, you're strong. You're like Mama. You're like Alice. You don't really need anybody. You, you just get out there and do it. But what I wish my mother had noticed was that I didn't either. So I always just was strong. Everybody said it, so I must be strong. <laughs> I think it made me a loner. It was a good quality, but I don't like being alone. My grandmother, Alice, she said, please always love your mother. She loves you dearly. She just doesn't know how to connect to you. Your mother loves you. And sometimes there's just no real explanation other than just the comment of it. Because 
What people don't realize, I think, is is that it is important to take the time to explain to someone and talk to them. Don't hide behind feelings. I think I suppressed mine through the years to be almost 70 years old and to see that the little girl in me still wants to go to the place. Since the barn is gone, my grandmother's gone, when most of my family is gone, there is no place that I feel quite at home anymore, but I'm looking for it. I'm going to find another place because my grandmother said I could do hard things, and I will, and I do. And great job on the production by Robbie, and thanks for just a, a beautiful piece of storytelling from Edie Hand and that barn. She said, it spoke to me. I like the openness, the lofts. You could dream. It was a place to dream. And at 70 years old, she's looking for that place. She suppressed her feelings, and she was the strong one, and it made her a loner. And everyone's got a kid like that in the family, right? Everybody thinks, oh, that, that kid's okay. We'll take care of the, the more needy one. Edie Hand's story here on Our American Story. And we continue here with Our American Story. Since being released in 1983, Francis Ford Coppola's film adaptation of S.E. Hinton's coming-of-age novel The Outsiders has found continued popularity and has achieved official cult status. And now in what is surely one of the most interesting pop culture intersections of all time, hip-hop artist Danny Boy O'Connor from the rap group House of Pain, best known for their iconic 1992 anthem Jump Around, purchased the Tulsa, Oklahoma home where much of the Outsiders film was shot. Here to tell the story is the man himself. Here's Danny Boy. My story really begins Los Angeles, California, 1983, when I went unknowingly to a movie that I had never heard of, uh, Woodland Hills, California, called The Outsiders with my friend Steve Sikulski, who um, just happened to read the book. I believe I was in seventh grade, and uh, so he was a fan of the book, and he wanted to see the movie. He said, Danny, you want to go see a movie with me? And I thought, sure, Steve Sikorsky, a uh, pretty cool junior high kid that I knew, so I figured, you know, if he likes it, it'll probably be something I like, but I had no idea what we were going to go see. I didn't have any frame of reference, and uh, on that full Saturday afternoon, we went in and saw the movie, and uh, I came out a changed man. And um, People ask me all the time, what was my fascination with The Outsiders? And the movie kind of hit me at a time where I definitely felt out of place in, uh, you know, the San Fernando Valley in the 80s, being a native New Yorker who um, was moved to California at the age of six and kind of always had like a, uh, a strong connection to the East Coast. Uh, so Southern California in the 80s looked a lot different than New York City did, and 
I don't know, I just always felt, you know, separate and apart from, and I, and I got that from the movie as well, and I grew up, my father went to prison when I was two months old, um, we moved in with my grandparents, my mother worked nights at the Chase Manhattan Bank, and so I never really had that foundation or that family, you know, uh, support or love. And, you know, I carry, I carry that with me, even though, you know, I've had a pretty extraordinary life. Um, you know, that, that foundation from the beginning has always felt unstable. And so when I went to see The Outsiders, the first thing I noticed was that they were a fractured family, a broken family, and that um, despite that, that they stuck together and um, had each other's backs. And I felt at a 13 or 14 year old's mindset was that if I could just find that kind of friendship out in the, in the world that maybe I wouldn't feel so bad about my home life and, and, and the way we grew up. And so that was the original hook for me for that movie. That being said, Matt Dillon was the coolest dude on the planet at that time. Um, the cast was incredible, whether it's Patrick Swayze, Ralph Macchio, Tom Cruise, Darren Dalton, C. Thomas Howell, uh, Diane Lane. They were all, you know, this was the first time I was really seeing them. Actually, Leif Garrett was the big star in my mind, uh, looking back, because he was a 70s star. And so really was the only notable name that I knew prior to, to The Outsiders then, Matt Dillon. But that being said, the, you know, the movie was, was, was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, and it, and it stuck with me. I immediately went home and then dug out a, a denim jacket that I may have had from the 70s in New York and uh, kind of uh, adapted that Dallas Winston, Matt Dillon swagger for the next few years. But uh, as fate would have it, I didn't really have much of a game plan coming out of high school. I, I dropped out in ninth grade. I hung out for the next three year, years at high school. Never really went in too much. Uh, got in a little bit of trouble with the law. And during the time where most of my friends were graduating high school and heading off to college or, or embarking on a career, I had no idea what I was going to do. And so I... Uh, Connected, reconnected with a high school friend who had had a record out prior to uh, me and him reconnecting and um, we started a band called House of Pain and at the time in hip-hop there wasn't anything on the landscape like it. We were really, you know, uh, kind of the next wave of, of, of hip-hop in the early 90s but at that time there wasn't any really, there wasn't really any hard white boys and we were like Irish-American, tough white kids and that was our shtick and that our, our deal was is that you know we were the kind of like you know boom bap punch you in your face type of hip-hop uh, that was missing you know as 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 the 80s turned into the 90s and, and grunge was a thing hip-hop needed to reinvent so us and cypress hill were kind of like the next face of that in that moment and so was very successful with that and sold a few million records and traveled all over the world and made a million bucks but um you know, I like to say what goes up must come down. And it wasn't only, you know, five years later that I was back to where I started even less because, uh, you know, doing music for a living, especially as a creative director and, and an artist more than I am a musician, it kind of left me empty handed when the career was done or the music career was done in that moment. And uh, I really had no other life skills. And I unfortunately turned to drugs to deal with that pain. So I spent the next, you know, five to six years high on methamphetamines and, and drinking around the clock. And it wasn't until about year 2000 that I got sober. 
I stayed sober for about three and a half years. And, uh, you know, first year was good. Second year, I started getting complacent and, and a little of my attitude started to come back and my expectations started to come back. And my, my, you know, I started to think, well, this is cool, but I don't know how long I'll stay. By year three, I started convincing myself that I only had a drinking problem and then drugs were clearly my problem. But if I just drank, how bad could that be? And uh, maybe I don't need this, this, this sobriety thing. And so... At around three and three and a half years, I decided to have a drink, and it was pretty much the worst decision I'd ever made. It took me a two a one week to go back on drugs, and took me three years to get make it back to a, to a, to the twelve step program. And it wasn't until two thousand and five that I was able to get uh, draw another sober breath. And in two thousand and five is when I began to put another group together called La Coca Nostra, which was kind of a super group. I took pieces of my old group and another group called Nonfiction and a few uh, undiscovered up and coming rappers, and we put a group together under that name, La Coca Nostra. And it was on that fateful tour that brought me to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So when we got to Tulsa, Oklahoma, we were stuck here for three days. And when I say stuck, I mean stuck. That day was not really special. I didn't know what to do. We just kind of hung out in Tulsa, grabbed a few bites, and then called it a day. But day two of the three days that we were here, we began to get extremely bored. And so I called down to the concierge desk in the lobby and asked them to um, call us a cab. They laughed. Uh, there was no such thing as cabs. or downtown Tulsa at the time, and it was it was pretty much pre-Uber and Lyft and all of those rideshare things. So they were able to get, they were able to wrangle us up a guy in a van that took about an hour and a half to get to the hotel. And then when he got there, we asked him, can he take us on a proper tour of Tulsa, which he proceeded to say yes, and then took us to the Woodland Hills Mall. And uh, I, to, I can assure you that didn't go over so well with a bunch of 40-year-olds <laughs> going to a, to a, what was at that point pretty, uh, you know, the mall was kind of shuttered as well. And so we went there uh, for about an hour, and as we were heading back to downtown Tulsa, it occurred to me, Tulsa, Tulsa, Tulsa. Why does Tulsa sound familiar to me? And it was at that moment I had the epiphany, and I said, excuse me, driver. And he said, yes. I said, was The Outsiders filmed here? And he almost like locked up the brakes. He was like, and turned around and he said, yes, absolutely. He says, why, do you know it? I said, I not only know it, I love it. Do you know where any of the filming locations are? And he said, I do know where the drive-in is. So we proceeded to drop off the rest of the group. I grabbed my road manager and said, you're coming with me. I grabbed my laptop. And at the time, even in 2009, there wasn't much on the internet to go on. And it's not like today. 2009, I looked up for locations for the Outsiders and I found a Flickr account or two and I found a site called Tulsa TV Memories which had a few of the locations and the addresses were given up. The address I was most interested in was the Outsiders house which was not given on that website but they did tell us where the drive-in was and it did tell me where the park in the movie was, the uh, Crutchfield neighborhood. And so we went to the drive-in and I couldn't imagine that this thing was going to look anything like it did in the movie but not only was it, uh, it felt like it, it, it hadn't changed a bit. And my mind just started to, to just melt really because it, it looked exactly like it would have in 1982 when they were filming and exactly like it did, you know, in the 60s when they were trying to describe it. So it was pretty good stuff. Anyway, so yeah, we got that driver to take us around Tulsa. We were able to find the drive-in. We were able to find Crutchfield Park 
which was the park that Johnny stabs the Sosha in and they have the confrontation with the Sosha's in. And then by finding the bark, I was able to find the house. And by finding the house, this is where the, 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 my life starts to take a different turn. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Danny Boy O'Connor from the rap group House of Pain, his journey back into his life, the movie The Outsiders, filmed in this town, Tulsa, in Oklahoma. The rest of this story continues here on Our American Stories. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. And we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of Danny Boy O'Connor. And my goodness, what a story it's been so far. No father a hole he's trying to fill because of that, sees this movie, sees this character in The Outsiders, played by Matt Dillon, of all people. And the next thing you know, a little bit later, he's in a big hit band, House of Pain, and then Drugs. And then one day there's a stop in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where The Outsiders was filmed. And the next thing you know, there he is in front of the house where that movie was filmed. Let's pick up where we last left off. At the time, it was for sale for $40,000. I uh, can assure you, you can't buy anything in Los Angeles, California with the word real attached to it for $40,000. I could not believe that this house, one, would be for sale, two, would be $40,000, and three, that that nobody understood its true value as an American classic and a a, a really a a sacred uh, hollowed grounds. that being said, I knew that I was in no position to buy a house in Tulsa, Oklahoma, living in Beverly Hills, California, and that I should just kind of take a photo and, and, and soak it all in while I was here and then and keep, it, uh, keep moving. So that's exactly what I did. I took a photo out front. Uh, we played Kane's Ballroom the next night, and I also found out that there was a hole in the wall that uh, Sid Vicious had punched in... Uh, 1978 when the Sex Pistols played Kane's Ballroom and I put both of those photos on Facebook which was pretty much a new thing as well and the response I got was incredible and in particular everybody was fascinated with the outsiders and that the house was not only one still on earth but they couldn't believe that it was still on the Warner Brothers lot which I had to correct a lot of people that it is no it is not on the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank it is actually still here in North Tulsa and I made sure I did not tell anybody that it was for sale because I didn't want anybody else buying it. Never again thinking that I would end up buying it five years later. But that's exactly what happened. So after finding the house, we kind of I, I realized that there's some there's, there's there's some real cool stuff across America, and so it really started here for me. But the, I started to urban explore, and I put a group together called the Delta Bravo Urban Exploration Team. And what that is is. Um, it's a page I started on Facebook, and I put the outsider's house first, and I put a before and after photo, told people the basics, you know, the outsiders, 1982, here's the house that the Curtis brothers lived, here's the address, 731 North St. Louis Avenue, and here's a before and after photo, and I found a lot of uh, support and made a lot of friends through this uh, web page that we started. And um, I found that there was a lot of like-minded people 
uh, all over the world, but here in particular in the U.S., that were at a certain age where they were like really looking back fondly on on all of the pop culture locations and 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 all of our collective history, which is really pop history. I mean, I was, if if I'm honest, I was raised by a television set and the radio. I mean, this is where I got most of uh, the stuff I was after, you know, as a kid. This is where all my information came from. So in 2009, I used the tour bus as my personal like pop culture location vehicle, and I figured if I'm going to be on this tour bus, and everybody else is going to be you know doing their thing, I'm going to get highly caffeinated, walk around every city we go to, and I'm going to look for uh, culturally relevant um, undiscovered locations. And so that was the birth of the Delta Bravo Urban Exploration Team. I, again, it just was like a cool hobby that I could do in my sobriety that really cost me nothing, and it was a, I was also able to kind of like see all the, the, the undiscovered locations that I had always wanted to see, like where Mary Tyler Moore's house was in Minneapolis, where the son of Sam was arrested in Brooklyn, and, and, and stuff like this. Um, and because of the success of that on, on the internet, uh, I, I got so much, you know, um, so many accolades and met so many cool people, we, we started to do it like uh, pretty, we took it pretty serious for a while. We were actually getting courted by a lot of companies in Hollywood. They were trying to turn it into a t television show. It never really kind of worked out uh, television-wise, but the group kept growing and growing, so we started to go on group trips, and uh, meanwhile, I was still touring a lot, so I was going back and, and forth across the U.S., and year after year, a minimum of twice a year, but uh, sometimes three or four times a year, I would come back uh, um, whether on purpose or not, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I'd always make a, a mission or pilgrimage to see the Outsider's House, and, and mostly some of the other locations as well. And what I started to notice is that year after year, this house was starting to deteriorate, and that the neighborhood was starting to fall apart, and that the Habitat for Humanity was coming through here, and they were clearing out a lot of these, these streets and, and, and these houses, building new houses. Um, I always like to qualify that I am a fan of the Habitat for Humanities and what they do, uh, in particular making low-income houses, you know, affordable to people who wouldn't be able to afford those. Um, and that being said, I was worried that nobody recognized this house for really what it was, which was an American classic and a, and a cinematic masterpiece, uh, you know, part of, of a bigger, you know, picture. And so at year five is when I got here and started to get worried. I started to think, well, what if they tear this house down? And what if nobody recognizes that what 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 this thing really represents and what it what it is? And it's on the fifth year when I started to to ask myself the question, well, why don't you do something about it? And um, really, I have no expertise on any of this stuff. I was just a I was just a fan who couldn't imagine the world without the Outsiders House. There was really never a plan or a blueprint or any of that, but. What I did was meet a couple people here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They not only saw the vision that I had, that this should be some kind of like, one, it shouldn't, it, it shouldn't ever be torn down. Two, maybe it could be restored and it could be somebody's house and we could put a little display or some homage to the, to the movie that was filmed here in one of the rooms. And the idea just kept getting bigger and bigger. But what, it, what ends up happening is we end up getting the, the contact information for the owner who, her husband bought the house uh, five years before I got here. And they basically did a quick fluff and buff in hopes to use it as a rental property. Unfortunately, her husband died. He gives it to her in the will. 
and her and her sister moved to Florida because they were not native to Tulsa and they've had no reason to stay here once her husband was gone. I guess it was, they were kind of like absentee landlords. I mean, they were they were trying their best to collect the rent, but the tenants weren't paying. They were eight months behind in their rent. The house was in terrible condition. And so by the time I found her in 2009, she was ready to sell. Uh, we called her. She told us she wouldn't take a penny less than $20,000. My buddy made the call, so he said he wouldn't give her a penny more than $15,000, to which she accepted. And at that point, I thought, man, I, we robbed this lady. I mean, we bought an American treasure for $15,000. I mean, where on earth can you buy a house for $15,000, much less the house from the movie The Outsiders? So yeah, I, so I buy the house for $15,000. I buy it sight unseen. I had never been in the house. I had peeked in it a few times. I had been on the outside of the outsider's house a few times, but never really knowing the true condition of the house and also never understanding. I, I'm, I, when it comes to you know, remodeling homes or anything that has anything to do with that, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I, this is not something that I would have been like predisposed to do or something that would have been a likely thing for me to do. I was just a passionate fan who couldn't imagine if they tore this house down um, what the world would, would be like without it. And so I ended up giving the tenants little by little over a month to move them out because uh, again they were eight months behind in rent and it cost me $4,800 to get them out. When I finally drove here a month later from California to see my new house, I ended up breaking in a back window because they did not leave me keys and I realized that this was the worst mistake I had ever made. And you just heard it from him, the biggest mistake he'd ever made, was it? Well, we're going to find out the rest of the story in a minute, but what a story it's been so far. He was raised on TV and a tour bus, and for $15,000, he thought he just bought a piece of the American dream and certainly an American treasure. What happens next? Well, we've all gone down this road before in our lives, folks. Something we thought was an opportunity, then we thought was a big mistake. And a little bit further down the road, well, who knows what. But some good came of that big mistake. Danny Boy O'Connor's story continues here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with our American stories and Danny Boy O'Connor's story. He had just laid down 15 grand on a house in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a house with the outsiders. His favorite film, the film that had more influence on his life than any other. And we all have that film or that book or that song. Let's return to Danny Boy's story in Tulsa. Clearly the owner knew a lot better than I did the condition of the house. If there was any worry of me 
underpaying for this house. It was quickly erased when I got in here. I mean, this house was in shambles. The only thing this house needed was a brand new house, and uh, it was in terrible condition. And then the fact was that it didn't, it didn't look like it had been cleaned up in the last hundred years. They were hoarding in here, and it was in terrible condition, and I panicked. And at that point, I thought, well, Basically, I just flushed $20,000 of my $28,000 life savings down the drain. I had no work in the foreseeable future for me. We weren't touring at that time, and I basically just put 80% of whatever cash I had left on earth into this house, which was a complete teardown. And so my next thought was like, look it, I'm going to ask for help. And uh, I often say, you know, I'm a six foot six alpha male, and it's hard to ask for help when people assume that you should be able to do this type of work. But the truth is, I don't know how to do this type of work. And it was very... It was very humbling, and I and, and I had to really humble myself to, to to admit that I didn't know what I was doing, and I was in over my head, and that perhaps if there were a few other Outsiders fans on Earth like me, um, maybe they could help me find a way to turn this into a to a museum, and that was my thing. I thought, well, I can't ask for help, and then this is my my fort or my new home in Tulsa. That didn't make any sense to me, why people would would, would be interested, because I wouldn't be interested in that. But I would be interested if somebody was doing a museum to help pitch in, whether that was a gift in kind or some cash or whatever. And so we put a GoFundMe together, and we started to raise a little money, and immediately the press got a hold of the story. And if I thought I was one of few Outsiders fans on this planet, it didn't take long for me to figure out that I was uh, clearly wrong on that. I mean, immediately the city council showed up to the house, the mayor of Tulsa showed up at the house, the press came out of the woodworks, and it just kept growing and growing and growing, and before long, you know, here we were on our way to turning this thing into a museum. Now, at first I want to tell you it was going to be a movie museum because I had read the book, but it was only a few years prior that I read the book, but this book again it is it is an american classic it was written by a 15 year old girl here in tulsa oklahoma by the name of susan eloise hinton the book is 51 years old now it has never been out of print at the time when uh, Susie got her publishing deal they agreed with the publishers that it'd be best if nobody understood that she was a, a female so they called her essie hinton to be ambiguous with that she was failing out of English when she wrote it and got a D-plus in creative writing, and I think that's incredible because the hope is there, um, you know, for everybody uh, that great things can happen despite maybe a few bad marks in a few, in, in, in a, in a few um, classes. And really, the book is what brings most people to the house. Uh, people love the movie without a doubt, and that movie, you know, basically launched the Brat Pack, which is all the actors we've mentioned before, you know, Tom Cruise, Patrick Swayze, Matt Dillon, Ralph Macchio, C. Thomas Howell, Diane Lane, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, the book seems to have way more of a, a draw or is equal, if not bigger, draw than 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 the movie, and that was learning experience for me as well. Because on an average day, people come by this house all the time to um, to stop by, and it's usually you know uh, a 50 year old, a 40 year old, two 17 year olds, and a 12 year old, and it's usually somebody's going to seventh grade and it's required reading. Their older brother and sister read it five years ago when they were in seventh grade. Uh, their parents remember reading it when they got to junior high and they also were there to see the movie or saw it on HBO when they were kids. And it's really the whole family tree that comes to enjoy this whole 
story from the book to the movie, and now I'm told it's being turned into a, a Broadway musical, which is also incredible. So, so much stuff has, has transpired since that first day of me buying the house. But what ended up happening is that the whole community kind of just puts this thing on their back and runs with it. Um, plumbers came by and helped me plumb, roofers roofed, gardeners gardened, um, tile layers tiled, and contractors contracted, and everybody just started to do what they could do. And it looked like, you know, people would say, hey, listen, on Sunday after my daughter's soccer practice, I can come by and work for two hours for free if you don't mind. And I said, like, yeah, it would be fantastic. And so really, this is a communal project. You know, I get thanked everywhere I go around town and around Oklahoma for, uh, you know, saving the outsider's house, but I feel disingenuous by accepting that praise. And I always tell them, and I think they think I'm being, you know, humble or being, you know, coy or whatever. But the truth is, is that this, this thing happens because everybody pitched in. Um, and helped, and it was usually the people with the least to give, given the most. Um, that being said, we we our number one supporter, um, cash wise, is the author Essie Hinton herself, um, and Jack White also, you know, came by and uh, told me he loved the what we were doing and and loved the book, he loves the movie, and loves Tulsa, and and he got us over the hump. We were stuck at forty five thousand dollars on our GoFundMe, and we were looking for seventy five thousand, and he said, I want to give you thirty thousand dollars from last night's show and get you over the hump which he did that and um, changed everything I mean we were kind of we were what I thought would take six to eight months to complete took us three years um, two months ago we finally were able to cut the ribbon in between those last three years we've done three events to support the house we're both Ralph Macchio C. Thomas Howell Darren Dalton all of them in the movie had come back one or two to three different times for three different events to support this. Um, and really what I found out is this thing has become like a community center um, and had a really good trickle-down effect. I mean, when I got here, the lawn was to my waist uh, and trash all over the place. We cut the lawn, got it down to size, we removed all the debris, we cut down trees that had, you know, fallen in upon themselves, and we basically cleaned this house up so nice that everybody else in the neighborhood started to get the drift, and they started to clean their stuff up. And before long, it, it changed the face of the neighborhood as well. And so if you come here in North Tulsa, on the corner of Independent and St. Louis, you'll, you'll definitely, uh, you'll see what I'm talking about and it's 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 a sight to behold there's a lot of uh there's just so many different layers to this thing I would have been bored a long time ago if it was just a house from a movie and as much as I love the film um and love the book there's so much more greater at work here um I love Tulsa Oklahoma I love uh that a 15-year-old girl wrote this while she was failing out of English and got a D-plus in creative writing, was really going through a rough patch, and she wrote this masterpiece. And this masterpiece is different than all others because it literally is the book that starts the young adult category. It was the first time that a young adult ever wrote about being a young adult for young adults. And if I'm not mistaken, that is the most successful category of books now on the market. Uh, for me, it's changed my life. I, I spent the first, let's call it, first 45 years of my life trying to build my career and, and, and promote my brand and, and stay relevant in that way. And finally, it was a breath of fresh air to discover that this thing could use a, a, somebody to champion it. And instead of championing 
you know, the the fragments of uh, of my shattered career or whatever, you know, uh, in in music that I was able to parlay all that experience that I thought was like of no use in the end and kind of pivot out and put it into Susie's legacy and, and in particular saving the Outsiders House and and by by taking this on um, it's opened my world to a whole bunch of other areas. Um, we're looking to do weddings here. We, we bring school children through on the uh, Monday through Friday. So schools will read this at seventh grade. They will go to the Circle Cinema, which was also uh, in a, a historic movie theater here that's 91 years old on the original Route 66. And it was also featured in the movie. They show that movie to those seventh graders. And then the seventh graders come here dressed as greasers and socialists. And they get to experience the the, the, the house, the museum, and I know that they get truly inspired because they don't have a lot of role models to look at and to say, hey, this person is from my school or my city or my town, and they've became successful, and they, they, they're legends, and make no mistake, Essie Hinton is their, that's their legend, that's their, that their mentor. They look and they go, this, this little girl did this here, and it gives them hope, and so for me, I found a whole new purpose here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, I live here now full time. I moved from Beverly Hills and I've been here for two years and it only gets better for me. This town has changed uh, tremendously in the last 10 years for the better. Um, there's a ton of cool things here between Route 66 and Kane's Ballroom and the Drillers Baseball Stadium where the Dodgers double A team plays. Uh, there's good food, good people, and, and affordable gas. What more can you want? And you can buy a beautiful home here for $150,000, which, tell me where else you can do that. So, I'm Danny O'Connor. I'm the owner of the Outsiders House, but I am the executive director of the Outsiders House Museum. And, uh, yeah, this is my American story. And what a story. Thanks to Danny Boy O'Connor for telling it. And thanks to Greg Hangler for putting this together. By the way, make sure to go to theoutsidershouse.com to learn more. Take a visit if you're driving across the Midwest. Stop in Tulsa. And my goodness, he took a stop in Tulsa, all right. And he called it his home. This New York boy, fatherless, chases his dream, ends up in L.A. L.A. is not his home. Pops down $15,000. He thought it was a big mistake. And of course... It became the most purposeful thing he ever did in his life. And he found meaning there and found, well, a family there. And as he put it, what a great place to go. Good food, good people, and affordable gas. Danny Boy O'Connor's story, the story of so many things in this country, but in the end, a story of finding home. This is How American Story. For more... Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.